Thank you, Nick, for the reading of God's holy word. God is good, church, all the time. Actually, I heard the joke that Tim shared, but it was two elders who went into a barn. Will, that was a good communion, too. Great thought. Joe David, as always, great songs. Mis hermanos, nearly forgot. Y hermanas, buenos días. Y las bendiciones de Dios siempre es bueno verte. En la casa de Dios en Antioquia. Well, church, I... I suspect everyone here knows this, but, um, and I know there were several there last week, but last week <clears throat> we buried uh, Sister Dale Pate, uh, Bruce's loving wife, and it was a beautiful service, I think. I, I helped a bit. Dove Wilson delivered a very, very fitting eulogy. I can tell you, though, I think I'll open with this illustration. Um, on the way to the cemetery, following the service, uh, the, the, she, was, she is buried out in Smyrna, and we were driving from Dolansville Road, and of course, as the one who was kind of responsible for the graveside, uh, myself, and, and actually Bruce as well, um, I was behind the hearse, and, um, and I've been in that position quite a bit, you know, behind the hearse, driving, and I can tell you that... Um, I've lived overseas 12 years, in, um, in the Far East, in the Middle East, and over in Europe for several years. And sometimes we in America may take things for granted, that we just think the entire world does. But trust me, not everyone in the world will stand by the side of the road with their hand over their heart when a hearse passes by. And it was just a vivid reminder to me um, that not only did, did, did most of the cars pull over, especially if there was a place for them to pull over, sometimes the roads were just too narrow, but they would always stop. Now, I don't know if they stopped for the entire long black train, but they would stop at least for the hearse. Um, and I saw that because I was right behind the hearse. What really caught my attention, though, were the patrolmen. We were um, directed, you know, from traffic from, by, by two um, off-duty state troopers in two state trooper cars. And that was fine until we got to Murfreesboro Road where the traffic was simply too heavy for, for two policemen to really uh, make sure that everyone was safe. And so apparently they incorporated the help of the Laverne police and then later the Smyrna police. And they, it was just like clockwork. We would drive and, and the two state troopers did their thing and the Laverne police blocked all the intersections. And when they would get out of their car, they too, you know, in uniform, would place their hand over their heart. When they passed it off to the Smyrna police, same thing, all the way to the cemetery. And I just, as I'm driving... I actually said the words out loud, I love this country. I mean, I know Philippians 3.20 says that, and it's true, the Apostle Paul is absolutely on target when Paul tells the Philippian church, our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But I'm thinking if I have to wait 
for the Lord Jesus, I'm glad it's here. In America, in Tennessee, and right here in Middle Tennessee. We've lived here now 17 years. I can't believe it's been 17 years ago. And um, I tell a lot of my friends in other states and students that I teach online, my next home will be in heaven. I don't plan to go anywhere. Now, when Patterson arrives, I want to go and say this now, I do plan on moving. Uh, but don't worry about it. Uh, I have been separated from my bride of 49 years for nearly three years. And so we're going to be reunited. I plan to move about 20 feet. No one laughed when I first said we were moving. I plan to go about 20 feet and be reunited with, okay. But anyway, uh, but when that time comes, I just want you to know that uh, I forgot what the context of this illustration was. That's okay. I've only got a few weeks left, you know. No hay problema. <laughs> uh, actually, where was I? But we do live in a great country. It, it, any, oh, yeah, this is where I was. Uh, it, it, it made me think as I was driving that we're still a nation of faith. Now, I know that our culture is shifting, some for the good, I think, but most, I think, is not for the good. But we nonetheless are built on a Judeo-Christian heritage. That's our foundation. And there are many people, at least, in not, in, not only the heartland of America, but I think along the coast, California, New York, and, 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 and I think the entire nation itself is still a nation of faith. Now, faith comes from hearing, Romans 10, 17, hearing from the Word of God. I know that context is talking about salvation, but it's applicable to this as well. Faith can only come through our knowledge of Scripture. And for that reason, we have a, there's still a semblance of God's, of God's uh, 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 word and scripture still alive in this nation. I would like to see more, I think we ought to have more uh, biblical discourse um, in the marketplace, in the public square, and we need to do what all, you know, just whatever we can do to not only know scripture, the word of God, but to be able to communicate it and to be able to simply speak about it, you know, as, you know, as we walk by the house and as we, you know, as we lie and rise up and walk by the way and so forth, you know, Deuteronomy 6, we need to be able to communicate God's word everywhere we go. But anyway, to go back to the story and then wrap it up, that's what I thought of. I thought, what a great nation. Reverencing the dead because we understand the transition. And the reverencing of those who have passed away is replete in Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And the reason it's, it's reverenced is because the Spirit, Ecclesiastes talks about this much less the New Testament, is because though the body dies, the Spirit returns to God who gave it, the body back to the dust of the ground. And this nation of ours understood that. Um, John Winthrop in 1630 you know, use that great text, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, that uh, when Jesus said, you are the light of the world, a city set upon a hill cannot be hid. And then in his opening discourse in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, it was, it was Governor Winthrop who, who alluded to Matthew 5, 14, and then called us this, this experiment in the Americas as we are the beacon set upon a hill. And so I just want to encourage you 
to continue to learn Scripture. The other day, by the way, I had very little to this sermon, and so I was telling Joe David uh, just before, it's moments like this that they tend to be the longest, you know, because I have a couple of points I want to make, and I think, well, I can, I've got, I can chase all sorts of rabbit trails after only having a couple of points. Um, but and, and no laughter. You know, by the way, Tim, you're not the only one, you know. <laughs> Uh, you don't have to laugh at everything I say because I suspect if you do that, there might be things I'm really serious about, and all of a sudden you break out in laughter. So I don't want to get you into that habit. But we need to understand that all Scripture is inspired of God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in goodness and righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it's a beautiful passage. All writings are God-breathed. The Apostle Peter says, 2 Peter 2, 2, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you might grow up to salvation. One of my favorite texts on the Word is that text in Psalm 119, verse 105, thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I know we hear it a lot from the pulpit and in classes, and we have for decades and decades and decades. We can never quite hear it enough. Church, you cannot follow in the footsteps of Jesus if you do not know where he stepped. You really need to be aware of Holy Scripture. You need to learn it. The other day over a dinner, uh, I was asked, you know, will you, know, will you miss, do you miss preaching or teaching? And, and I thought, really, I never was much of a preacher. And, and, and I'm not saying that in any sort of uh, self-deprecating way. I have been a teacher. My heart is in teaching. It's in sharing the word. And the difference between the two, if you will allow this little rabbit chase here, the difference is, is that teaching primarily interprets the word with a brief application. Preaching, on the other hand, interprets it, the word, but spends the bulk of the time on how you apply the word. Both are needed, and God calls people to do both, both teach and preach, and then there are those he calls to kind of balance between the two. My heart has always been in teaching. I find it challenging to always apply the word. Not to me, I find it challenging to figure out how to help you apply it. In the end, it has to be your application, not mine. And so I want to encourage you to learn the Word, which is step number one, and then apply the Word. And if I can help a little bit, perhaps God has called Patterson to really open that door up and help us all apply it. And I'm looking forward to sitting right there with my sweet bride of whatever, 49 years nearly, and to enjoy hearing my brother Patterson share the word and help old brother Witt apply it. Regardless of age, you know, the old dog moment, you know, of course we can learn new tricks. We never reach a point where we're there. In fact, the time that we reach a point when we have simply learned the last word and applied the last divine teaching, we're dead on this side. We've taken our last breath. Now, nearly, I can't believe it's been this long, in January of 2019, I opened a new series. In that series, we called it Bible Reset. Let's reset the Bible, at least the New Testament. 
There are 27 books in the New Testament. And I had told you within the next 12 months, we're going to go from Matthew to Revelation. And that was nearly two and a half years ago, and we're on the 14th book, right? But I want to remind you that, and by the way, that's my lead into 1 Thessalonians. We are going to be talking about 1 Thessalonians today and for, the next, and for my next three Sundays. And then uh, on May 30th, I have five more messages left. Um, I'll finish up April. On May the 2nd, we're having the, a wonderful senior service day. On May the 9th, one of our, we have a guest speaker for Mother's Day. And then I'll pick it back up on May 9 and 7 on May uh, 16, May 23, and May 30. So for the next four times I preach beginning today, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians. Now we have covered Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and now 1 Thessalonians. And you might say, man, it's taking you a long time to go through half of the New Testament. We've had other series, by the way, like Jonah and other things. But I want to remind us, too, that even though there are 27 books in the New Testament, we've covered 85% of the words. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1st Thessalonians are 85% of it. 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation cover 15% of the New Testament. And if you leave out Hebrews, 13 chapters, and Revelation, 22 chapters, you can you can look at the rest, and you know, that's about 3%. Now, I only bring that up to say that we've been through a lot together. I mean, good stuff, I pray. We cannot apply what we do not know. We have to first know it, and then we can apply it. And that's how we grow in Christ. Maturity takes time, and maturity takes knowledge and heart, head and heart. And then you begin to apply, and you simply are more and more transformed into the image of Christ. Put it one more way before we kick it off here. If you were to read out loud, I know because you could look at an audio Bible and figure this out like that. If you were to read the first 13 books of the New Testament from Matthew through 1 Thessalonians, it will take you approximately 15 and a half hours. If then you were to read from 2 Thessalonians all the way to the last verse of Revelation 22, 21, come Lord Jesus, may the grace of Christ be with all the saints, amen, it will take you about three hours. It takes about 16 hours for the first 13 books and three hours for the last 14. I only again bring it up to remind you, by God's grace and mercy, we've gone through a lot of the New Testament. And again, by God's grace and mercy and faith, you know, and I know, of course, we'll hear Patterson share all sorts of beautiful thoughts from the Bible. That's what it's all about. But, but I just have to start with that. Okay, so we're on 1 Thessalonians. We've already heard, by the way, the reading was from Acts that Nick read so well. Thank you so much, Brother Nick, that he read from Acts because Acts sets the stage for Paul's establishment of the church in Thessalonica. 
modern pronunciation is Thessaloniki, biblical Thessalonica, American Thessalonica. Are you with me? Okay, here we go. Acts chapter 17. Let's read it again. You can just listen if you will. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and, Apoll and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and for three weeks, notice the timing, he's only there three weeks. That's why he writes the letter. He's really concerned about this baby church. Um, and for three weeks he argued with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked fellows of the rabble, they actually hired thugs, taking some wicked fellows of the rabble, they gathered a crowd, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities crying. And notice what the Jewish authorities were blaming were criticizing Paul and Silas and Timothy and these, uh, actually those three men. It will later move to the Thessalonian church. This is their critique. This is what they're upset with. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. If you have to walk away with one simple point from this message, take that one with you and ask yourself the question, has there ever been a time when my individual life, my walk with Christ, or collectively as the body of Christ, where we have turned the world upside down? Now, granted, that's easier to do in an evil culture. With America being grounded in the Judeo-Christian uh, faith, then we've had less of an opportunity because it's been so widely accepted. Unlike Thessalonica or Philippi or any of the known world during the first, second century and from that point forward. But the time is probably coming and now is when we'll have ample opportunity to turn the world upside down here because the world here is no longer grounded in Christian values. So therefore, everything that you presently believe, half of it, they don't like. And if you stand firm, you're going to have a rabble against you. And if you stand firm against the rabble, their criticism is going to be, Stop turning the world upside down, my world upside down. Stop turning my culture upside down. Hmm. And I hope it comes to pass. So that's 1 Thessalonians. That's the, the, the background, Acts 17. Now, let's give a very quick background of the, of the book here. You're going to have to make your own application. I've got a few that I can apply as I move along, but that's, it's always been tough for me, so I want you to put on your thinking caps. I should have told you this, actually, back in 2005. That might have helped. 
I, I want you to see, you, you, you really, if I had a pointer, it wouldn't work on this because it, it would blend in. I mean, the red, you wouldn't see it. But you see the Sea of Marmara on the upper right. I was actually there in the north of that. And just north of that is the Black Sea because the Black Sea and the Sea of Marmara, which feeds into the Aegean Sea, separates two continents, separates Asia on the east and Europe on, there in the west. And the city back then during Paul's day of Constantinople, now Istanbul, um, if you, if you, the only way to go from Turkey, from Asia Minor, into Macedonia, northern Greece today, is to go through the Bosphorus Strait, which connects Marmara and, uh, and the Black Sea. Very little, short little bridge right over from Asia into Europe. Well, I drove that years ago. I mean, a long time ago, when I was a very, very young man, myself and three other buddies of mine, we were in R&R, rest and relaxation. We took some leave for our duty that we, were, that we had on the Soviet border. We did that, and we drove. We crossed the Bosphorus Strait. We uh, went into present-day Macedonia, and we stayed overnight in Kavala, which is the uh, newer modern city where the, where the ruins of Philippi are. We went from Philippi to Thessaloniki, and we could have gone up to Berea. We didn't do that. We, then we drove on to Athens, from Athens to Corinth, all along the Aegean coast. And I loved it. All four of us were not very well read in Scripture, but we were all Christians. And um, two of them, like brand new Christians, I know, there's two of those guys. And so uh, four of us who didn't know a whole lot, you know, read a little bit in, in the Bible and thought, well, let's go to Athens. We have some time off. Let's kind of rest here. And it was a beautiful drive. It was a great time. Now, remember that when Paul uh, was in Asia Minor, and I'm, I've got to be careful because I could really go on to this too long, but when Paul is in Asia Minor in Turkey, he's thinking, he and Silas and Timothy on this second missionary journey, he's thinking, well, I'm going to go down to Bithynia. He's already been there. That's in southern Asia Minor. But the Spirit of God moves Paul, and we have what we call the Macedonian call. So he hears, he gets this vision from God, and God says, I want you to go over to uh, Macedonia. And so Paul tells, uh, tells Silas and Timothy, we're changing our vector here. We're going to change our plans. We're not going this way. We're going into Europe. He didn't say that, but we're going across the Aegean to Macedonia. And I suspect they discussed it, and once they realized that God told Paul, they're right along. So Paul does that. He gets on a ship. He goes over. He ends up very, first of all, all in Acts 17. The Macedonian calls in Acts 16. And Paul ends up in, um, in Philippi, which is the leading city, the capital of Macedonia. And what does he do at Philippi? He establishes the body of Christ. He preaches the gospel. So he, he plants the seed. And they kind of water a little bit, and God gives the growth. And so you have the church of God at Philippi like that. But they didn't like it. The Philippians didn't like it, the pagans. So they threw Paul into prison, and Paul and Silas and Timothy are now in prison. God releases them with an angel, and then Paul, they travel to Thessalonica. That's where they're headed. And guess what? They do the same thing. Their custom was to go into the synagogue where God's people were. They did their very best, taking the Old Testament, taking the Hebrew text, and they, 
and they uh, proved that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed, is indeed the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ of God, the anointed one. And some believed. Acts 17 says there were some leading Jews who believed and became Christians. There were uh, devout Greeks, God-fearers, who believed and became Christians. So there were some wealthy women. We could have a whole lesson on that because the Greeks opened the door. They were nearly, um, it, it was not a man-oriented society as much as the rest of the world. The Greeks opened it up and allowed women to take place. And so there were leading women. Lydia in Philippi was a seller of purple. She had a great business. That would have probably not happened in Jerusalem. But in Philippi it could. And so the Bible tells us that the, that the um, complement of the Church of Christ at Thessalonica consisted of Jews, converted, completed Jews, uh, God-fearers, devout Greeks, very wealthy women, and pagans who had just been converted from paganism. What an interesting congregation. And Paul does all of this in three weeks. And then once he, once he's, you know, once they're starting to grow, the authorities got upset. The authorities hired a rabble. The rabble comes out, and they, and so they disrupt the entire thing to the point that Paul had to get away for his life. And Paul and Silas and Timothy go from um, Thessalonica to Berea. And what is that beautiful text in Acts 17:11? That'll preach, by the way. And Antioch needs to remember that like forever. When, when uh, Luke writes, the Jews in Berea were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. Why? Because they eagerly received the word and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You can either take the word of God and you can simply say, no, no mas, that's not for me. Or you can take the word and say, this is my only my sole authority for my faith and practice, and I will do everything I can to learn new and to adjust my life accordingly. That's why we need to always be Bereans, not Thessalonians as a whole. Okay, very quickly, from Berea, Paul, the same rabble come because from Thessalonica they, they hear about this. How far is Berea from Thessalonica? 40 miles. Philippi is 40 miles to Thessalonica. From Thessalonica, I know I drove that, from Thessalonica to Berea is 40 miles. And then at Berea, only 40 miles, you've got the same rabble coming and stirring things up to such a degree that the Apostle Paul has to escape for his life again. And Silas and Timothy stay there. And Paul escapes for his life. He goes to the Aegean Sea. And from there, he he moves on. I mean, he sails down to Athens. And while at Athens, the Bible tells us, Acts 17, that he summons, he commands Timothy um, and Silas to, to go to Athens. Why? He wants to find out how the churches are. And there was no email. There was no telephone. There was no texting. He's in the dark. He had only been there three weeks. He's thinking... Are, are, are they still there? Did, they, did their faith hold up? And so he summons for, for, for Silas and Timothy. They go, to, they, they go to Athens, but by that time, Paul had already gone on to Corinth. So they followed him to Corinth. And in Corinth, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out about the church. No letter yet. 
He establishes the, the Thessalonian church in AD 49. He writes the letter in AD 51. By the way, church, which of 27 books of the New Testament was the very first to be written? Guess. Go ahead, say it out loud. First Thessalonians. The very first spirit-led writing that we have in what we call the New Testament, the Christian scripture, was written around AD 51. Paul's last letter in Rome to 2 Timothy about AD 64. In about a 14 or 15 year period, Paul writes 14 letters. The last one to be written was the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation about AD 95. From AD 50 to AD 95, about a 45 year period, God inspires his people to write, and it's later compiled as his word, and we call it the New Testament. So, Paul sends Timothy back, and Timothy then returns with this report, beautiful report. He says, wow, Paul, not only did they, or not only are they surviving, they are growing, growing in the midst of all of that persecution. And Paul, now there were some issues, like, you know, our dead have, have died. I use that for Dale's, for Dale's uh, departure, you know, and just to comfort Brother Bruce and the others. It's a beautiful text, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 through 18. Uh, I would not have you, by the way, be careful where you put the comma there. I tell young guys, because in the English translation it says, I would not have you ignorant brethren. But if you put the comma right, I would not have you ignorant, comma, brethren. In what terms, and then he talks about concerning those who have fallen asleep. We'll not go there. But, but so there were some issues that Paul's addressing. But he was thrilled. So here's, here's the five chapters of, of Thessalonians. There are two main movements. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul celebrates their faith in Christ they're a three-week-old baby church, and I mean infant church, not you who were, might have you know, become a Christian at 16, but you pretty much heard about Christianity your whole life. We're talking from not knowing a thing about Christ, Jesus Christ, to becoming a Christian and maturing in three weeks. Now, Paul's gone for several months, and in those months, these, th these handful of Christians are growing. No doubt the Spirit of God was the one who helped them grow. But chapters 1 through 3, Paul celebrates this faith in Christ. Chapters 4 and 5, he then challenges them to continue to grow, to endure. These two movements are surrounded with three prayers. I said this part's pretty short, and that's why I could, you know, chase those rabbits. But there are three prayers. The next three sermons, by God's grace, that I deliver will be on each of these prayers. And I hope, my goal, and I know it's going to happen that way because the Spirit of God's in control, the goal will be for you to completely envelop what Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church based on those three prayers. 
The opening prayer is in chapter 1, verses 1. Really, it's verses 2 and 3. You can read that in context. And then he goes into celebrating their faith. There is a transitional prayer, and that transitional prayer begins at the end of chapter 3, 11 through 13. It's a prayer of endurance. And then once again, he'll pick up chapters 4 and 5, and he'll say, you need to endure I celebrate it, and I challenge you to keep it going. And then he closes with the prayer of hope. We're going to take a few more minutes. It's just two. I can't leave this. I have to say this. Uh, Let's read very quickly those three prayers. Notice verses 2 and 3, because there is a pattern that Paul's developing here. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father. Notice what Paul says they remember. Your work of are you with me? Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where have you heard those three words before? In a little bit different order. Faith, love, hope. I do believe that everything Paul writes was, in spirit of, was, was um, inspired by God, I also know that God uses our own personalities. Paul's theology of those Christian virtues really grow. One of these days, I'll probably do it next week when, we, when I go into this first one, but it really uh, mirrors the cardinal virtues of justice, prudence, um, of justice, wisdom, courage, uh, and moderation. But we'll talk about that later. These are the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. Now, it it will take him seven years later, he'll write 1 Corinthians. By then, he's really developed this through the Spirit. And he says love never ends. He says love is not, love is patient and kind, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or boastful. Uh, It does not rejoice at at wrong, but rejoices in the right. He goes through that. He concludes, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. He closes verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I was having uh, lunch. You want to talk about application? Here's an application. I was having lunch just a week or so ago with with a very dear friend of mine, a brother in Christ. We're talking about family issues. And the concluding moment was, don't quit. Don't give up. Why? Because love never quits. If you're a father and you're talking about your son or a father-daughter or a mother-children or a father-husband-wife or whatever other relationship you can come up with, love doesn't quit. So if you're praying for a child, a 45-year-old child, don't quit. And if Paul, if God were writing you, he would say, If you were to ask God the question, God, I don't have any more energy. I've worked on this for 40 years. He would say, love never ends. Faith and hope the same way. Then he comes, Paul, comes to 
the transition prayer. Listen to these words. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Don't have the time just yet. I will in a couple of weeks. But the word holiness is a synonym for, love, for faith before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You want to, what do we, what, what is our hope based on? That in Greek, the word elpis, it's a certainty. It's not a flippant maybe or maybe not. So every time Paul uses the word hope, he's not saying that it may or may not happen. He says, wait for patience until it does because I promise you it will happen. He writes to the Romans, Romans 8, 24, um, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. How in the world can you wait for anything with patience on something you simply hope for unless you know it will occur? And so when Paul says faith, and hope, the assurance, the certainty of God's promise and love. And the whole Christian walk revolves around those three truths, those three virtues. And he'll close the same way. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body, again, synonyms, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 28, how does he close? Que la gracia de nuestro Señor Jesucristo sea con ustedes. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And that is an overview of 1 Thessalonians. It is a beautiful letter. I encourage you to read it. It will take you 12 minutes to read out loud. You could read it every day before the next message. 12 minutes. Turning the world upside down requires faith and hope and love exemplified. And the world cannot. And I mean the world. I'm talking about Antioch. I'm talking about right here. You don't have to go to Istanbul. The world is here. And let Antioch turn the world upside down. Everywhere we go, reflect Jesus Christ. And what you say and in what you do.